like killer bees. They keep coming and coming and coming. Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to a fresh edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, beaming your way from San Francisco. As your pronouncer told you, this program supported by great listeners who volunteer to subscribe. And I want to name Leanne Rayer, Christopher Welsh, and Dan Blick as sponsors of today's program. If you'd like to help, go to my website, peterbcollins.com. The tab is on the right. It says, you can help. And our voluntary subscriptions start as low as $5 a month. And now for something you can't find in most corporate media outlets. A thoughtful look at the immigration debate underway in this country. Jeffrey Kay worked for many years as a correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. He's now an independent freelance journalist and the author of a new book called Moving Millions, How Coyote Capitalism Fuels Global Immigration. Jeffrey's here in our secret studio. Welcome to the program, Jeffrey. Pleasure to be here, Peter. Thank you very much. Good to talk with you. And people can pick up immediately from your accent that uh, you're not from South Carolina. That's correct. You're an immigrant yourself, and you prefer the term migrant. You use that most in the book. And uh, as a man of words, I want to ask you to uh, describe a few terms before we begin our discussion. Because I think words are very important and terms have become extremely loaded. Uh, Mm -hmm. Oh, like the word amnesty Mm -hmm. means uh, different things to different people. Uh, But your your own family history uh, originated 100 years ago in Russia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my uh, great grandparents and grandparents moved from, uh, well, actually, uh, Russian occupied Poland um, to the United Kingdom moved for a combination of reasons, anti-Semitism, but also the economy was uh, was bad. Um, and so they made it and made livelihoods in the United Kingdom where my parents were born. And you're grateful, you say, in your introduction to the Tsar and to Prime Minister McMillan. Yeah, I was going to come to that. Um, <laughs> well, because, you know, most... As we look at immigration, we kind of focused on the personal decisions and calculations that people make. And obviously, in the end, when people do make the decision they're going to move from one country to another, it comes down to a personal calculation. But what we often forget to think about or don't think about uh, are those things that programs, policies that motivate people to move in the first place. Mm -hmm. So in the case of my grandparents and great-grandparents, policies enacted by the Tsar, combination, as I said, of anti-Semitism and uh, economic programs help push them out. In the case of my parents, who were born and lived in in uh, Great Britain until the they in the they uh, until the 1960s, um, there were austerity programs and high taxes uh, that took their toll on my father, who was an artisan, a craftsman. He made jewelry with his hands, uh, and had a hard time making a living because peop- there were high taxes. Taxes were raised on luxury goods, so they uh, reluctantly made the decision to migrate to the United States. We came to live in California. My father got a job and workshop in Beverly Hills and did okay. Mm-hmm. Didn't get rich, but uh, made enough to put his kids through college, um, and something we're very grateful for. But again, you know, a, per- a combination of a personal decision um, taken very reluctantly, leaving family behind knowing that he may never see his mother again, same case with, with, with uh, my mother, and the policies of a government that helped push us out. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the draw of the, a possible job in the United States. 
Now, it's not Arizona, so I won't ask to see your papers, Thank but you. what is your status, sir? <laughs> <laughs> you know, over the years, I've dealt with uh, immigration officials who hear my accent, and that's sort of a, an immigration joke they like to make with me, so I've heard that one before. Have you? But uh, generally coming from people in uniform. <laughs> <laughs> On the one extreme, the term illegal alien uh -huh. is widely used, and people say it's simple. If you're illegal, you don't belong in this country. Mm -hmm. um, why is that an inappropriate or an uh, inaccurate term uh, to describe so many of the people who are here who are not citizens? Well, it's probably not uh, completely off base. I think it uh, it's descriptive. The folks who are here, in a sense, um, are, if they're here unlawfully, are aliens, according to our laws. I don't like the term because we tend to think of extraterrestrials Indeed. as yeah. aliens. So I've sort of shied away from that because mm -hmm. I think it dehumanizes people. Uh, I've, I've used the term illegal immigrant. Again, it's not a perfect term. I've been criticized for that. Um, uh, somebody wrote to me, well, we don't talk about illegal bankers. Why should we talk about illegal immigrants? I don't get the point. Mm -hmm. Others prefer the term undocumented immigrants or undocumented migrants. I don't like that because it's not a very precise term. Most people, uh, whether they're here uh, legally or not, have some kind of documents. They mm -hmm. may be the wrong ones, but uh, they've got documents. I, I, uh, I have to say your book uh, caused me to think about that because as a PC lefty, mm -hmm. uh, I have often used that term to describe non-citizens uh, who are here without the benefit of even a green card. Yes. Uh, and so uh, I, I take your point that uh, it, it's not terribly precise, and it is a euphemism in so many respects. Right. So I've stuck with the term right or wrong, illegal immigrant. At least we're on the same page. Other people who may or may not agree with my, my position on the issues understand what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, others use the term unauthorized. I'm not crazy about that. Yeah. Um, so illegal immigrant is what, what, what I use to describe people. What's the difference between a migrant and an immigrant? Uh, immigrant is usually used to describe someone who legally crosses a border going, going through the, uh, all the legal steps you're supposed to. A migrant uh, I've used as and is used much more generically to describe mm -hmm. someone who crosses a border legally or illegally. And so the term that I've used most often in the book uh, is migrant mm -hmm. um, because it, it is generic, it, uh, it's descriptive, um, and the issue that I'm most concerned about and write about is, uh, is what's propelling migration encouraging migration, either pushing people out, pulling people in. Uh, it's not so much the legal issues. So in a way, I kind of lumped these folks together, both legal and illegal, under the rubric migrant. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the other picture here is that there are some people who don't intend to stay. Mm -hmm. uh, they might come to the United States for work, and, and they might even be here for 20 years. Mm -hmm. But they don't have a real intention to put down roots. They are uh, earning money to send to their native country, to family, uh, uh, across a border somewhere. And that's been the history of migration. Uh, it, it, people don't always move with the intent of settling down forever. Even Eastern European migrants, uh, Chinese immigrants who came to this country, came often with the intention of, of making money, sending it home, and, and re returning themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, many Mexicans uh, who typically would have come across and got, lived here for a while to, and then returned um, did that for, for decades and decades and don't do it as much as they used to. It's called circular migration, um, simply because of one of the unintended consequences of border enforcement has been to trap people here. So those people who might have gone home with the intention of either uh, of either staying in Mexico and, and, and only visiting occasionally mm -hmm. or ha with the intention of, of going back and forth every f few years uh, have instead decided to stay in this in this country because they know that if they're here illegally that the chances they're going to get back are going to be uh, very difficult. Same thing, by the way, has happened in Europe um, when when the Europeans uh, brought in migrants from, from Turkey and, and, and other countries, uh, Muslim migrants in the uh, 60s, late 50s, 60s, 
they brought them in as temporary workers with the idea, the expectations, those folks would remain um, temporarily and then go home when they were no longer needed. Well, that didn't turn out that mm -hmm. way. So there are a lot of these policies that we've had in place in the developed world where we have various expectations of how migrants are going to be behave, but they don't always meet our expectations. Jeffrey Kay with us, and his new book is called Moving Millions, How Coyote Capitalism Fuels Global Immigration. And Jeffrey, I really commend you because in a book that has a very strong personal narrative, you weave in uh, a lot of history, a lot of economic factors, but never in a way that uh, is hard to penetrate or overly academic. And, and I'd like to start with some of that history because, uh, as you were talking about uh, a moment ago, there, there have been these waves of migration mm -hmm. uh, to the magnet of, of work, of, mm -hmm. of being able to earn a living greater than what's available in a native land. And I was struck a few years ago, the San Francisco Chronicle, in honor of the 100th anniversary of the famous uh, 1906 earthquake, uh, republished uh, entire front pages from the Chronicle uh, of 100 years prior. Mm -hmm. And in the week before the earthquake in April of 1906, there were a series of deeply racist articles on the front page about Chinese, mm -hmm. the yellow peril. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they, they didn't use uh, terms like gook uh, that are, you know, uh, in or chink, you know, that are in circulation uh, as a uh, derogatory term today. But uh, the, the racism was not at all veiled. And it was just, uh, you know, this is a, a virus, a disease that can ruin our society. And the unctuous nature of the, and this was not an editorial column, this was supposed to be a news column, <laughs> uh, was readily apparent. So take a moment here to talk about the waves of uh, labor-based migration to the United States over our history. Well, I, uh, starting with Chinese immigration is a good place to start with that. And I myself was doing some research recently in Arizona, uh, looking over the re public records uh, or, or the records kept by an, a Chinese agent. These were agents employed by the immigration department to go after Chinese people here illegally after a round of, uh, well, uh, racist demonstrations, uh, reaction to Chinese laborers in the 1870s and 1880s. Um, Chinese had been brought into the country, imported to work in the fields, uh, in, on the railroads, in the mines uh, in the early 1800s. Um, as the economy soured in the 1870s, and interestingly by labor unions or organized labor uh, here in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, in Seattle, all up and down the West Coast, there were demonstrations, anti-Chinese demonstrations, uh, with the slogan, the Chinese must go. And as a result, the government that had once embraced Chinese laborers in 1882 uh, decided no more Chinese. They caved into these racist demands and enacted a piece of legislation called the Chinese Exclusion Act. The first one actually directed at a, a racial group uh, with the intention of keeping out Chinese laborers. And in order to do that, they formed uh, a wing inside the immigration department, which interestingly came at that time under the Department of Labor, which should tell you something about how we saw migration at that time. Um, and the job of, of, of these agents was to track down Chinese who were still coming into the country. And many came through Mexico, interestingly enough. We don't, most people don't appreciate the fact that in the latter part of the 19th century, um, or the, I'm sorry, in the late, in 1800s and the, the beginning part of the 20th century, um, most of the people who were coming across the border illegally from Mexico were Chinese. Um, that was their way into the country. Mexicans were okay. And uh, they, they were smuggled first into Mexico and sometimes legally went to Mexico because Mexico didn't have a problem with Chinese and then came across the border, sometimes disguised as Mexicans. And so the, the folks who were chasing them down uh, 
became known to some reporters, at any rate. I saw, uh, I started talking about some of the headlines I'd been looking at and coming off what you were talking about, the San Francisco Chronicle story of uh, 1906. In 1904, uh, there were people employed with the immigration department called, known as chink chasers. Um, and ironically, I was looking over these uh, yellowed newspaper clippings just about the same week, or the week after the uh, Arizona law was passed in Arizona. I was in Tucson doing some research. And uh, it was kind of scary and a little numbing to go through and look at the headlines in these newspapers, headlines like one less chink after arrests of Chinese immigrants right after the SB 1070. So to come to your question, yeah, there have been waves of migrants, um, Chinese notably among them, where we've welcomed them in and then banished them. Um, it's happened in the First World War with Mexicans. It happened in the Second World War with Mexicans, where the, there are agreements to bring over uh, needed laborers, uh, often the, the in the Bracero fields. Program. The Bracero program. Uh the -huh. Bracero program of uh, the 1940s and 1950s, until the economy hit the skids. And what did we do? We, we shipped them out and rounded them up. Mm -hmm. um, notably, in the Depression, after World War I, where... Uh, Herbert Hoover had been a lobbyist for the agribusiness industry. Uh, when the, during World War I, there was a labor shortage, tried to bring in, did bring in Mexicans. Uh, but following World War I, when the same Her Herbert Hoover became president and a depression set in, uh, his Department uh, of Labor was uh, actively rounding up Mexicans, uh, many of the Mexican-Americans, and uh, the uh, train stations in Los Angeles and elsewhere up and down the West were jammed uh, as the United States deporting, uh, deported a labor force that we had once encouraged. So I, I guess this is a way of looking at migrants as almost a disposable labor force, people who we welcome when times are good uh, and we either discourage or deport when times are bad. And I think that says something about and provides a little insight into what's happening today when there is so much uncertainty about the economy. And likewise, with these waves of migrants and reaction to them when times got bad, mm -hmm. we have seen waves of political pandering to nativists uh, over the years yeah. um, that, that this is a threat to you. And uh, it's most often characterized, particularly here in California, as brown-skinned people, uh, pr uh, presumably all from Mexico. But the actual proportion of illegal immigrants in the United States today is not all Mexican. Uh, if you look at the whole nation, that, uh, Mexicans and Central and South Americans comprise about half. Is that correct? I'm not sure it's that high. Um, uh -huh. And I don't have the statistics in front of me, but a good portion. I think the highest proportion are from Latin America and from Mexico. Mexico has a tenth of its population living living in the United States. Mm -hmm. But I will say this about you know the, the issue of pandering. Certainly there are many politicians out there who pander and who historically have pandered. But when times are tough and the, the and uncertain as they are today, you don't have to do a lot of pandering to work up people's anxiety. It's there. Um, and I think when, when you see this sort of confluence of, of factors, the large number of, of immigrants, people who don't look like us, speak our language, no matter what language it is, although it's predominantly Spanish, as we know, um, along with a depressed economy and an uncertain economy. And I personally don't think that this is a typical economic cycle we're going through. This is maybe a whole other subject for another mm -hmm. book. I don't know. But um, I, you know, I think people feel a great sense of, of unease about the future for very good reason. And you put that together uh, with the waves of migrants and, and neighborhoods changing, um, that's, uh, that's disquieting. Mm -hmm. and, and so it doesn't take up a lot to, to, doesn't take a lot to work up um, to, well, the, what you described as political pandering, but you know, people are going to lash out at what they don't know. Now, for the benefit of our listeners um, outside of California, I'm going to play a radio commercial here that is part of the Republican gubernatorial primary that's underway. Our primary election is coming up on Tuesday, June 8th, just a few days from now. 
And Meg Whitman, who has no political experience, is the former CEO of eBay, who has pumped $80 million of her own money into this campaign, largely spending it on radio and TV. So my apologies to California listeners who've heard too much of this, but this is a remarkable commercial because uh, it is built on Pete Wilson's uh, pandering uh, against uh, immigrants in 1994 as Meg Whitman doubles down with a cameo appearance from the Peatster. Meg Whitman on illegal immigration. Don't be fooled by misleading ads. My position on immigration is crystal clear. Illegal immigrants are just that, illegal. I am 100% against amnesty for illegal immigrants, period. Period. As governor, I will crack down on so-called sanctuary cities like San Francisco, who thumb their nose at our laws. Illegal immigrants should not expect benefits from the state of California, no driver's license, and no admission to state-funded institutions of higher education. And I'll create an economic fence to crack down on employers who break the law by using illegal labor. This is former Governor Pete Wilson. I know how important it is to stop illegal immigration, and I know Meg Whitman. Meg will be tough as nails on illegal immigration. She'll fight to secure our border and go after sanctuary cities. Please join me in supporting Meg Whitman for governor. Now, this is fascinating in a number of ways, Jeffrey. First of all, the Republicans have learned nothing. Uh, Pete Wilson won re-election in 1994 on the backs of, uh, of immigrants uh, by using the uh, Proposition uh, 187, which uh, we knew at the time, and uh, I'm not patting myself on the back, but I declared this is four-fifths unconstitutional. And uh, the court agreed and overturned 187. And uh, this has led to uh, Republicans unable to get support from uh, citizens, Latino uh, or uh, Latino heritage citizens here in California uh, for almost the last generation. And so in a primary where Meg Whitman is is barely being challenged by uh, Steve Poisoner, who's trying to look even tougher and more Arizonian on these issues, uh, she's using the phrase tough as nails. Mm -hmm. And I find that interesting because in an article that you wrote for the Huffington Post, you talk about a Republican who runs a, an air service that is used to deport um, uh, illegal immigrants. Uh, his name is uh, Iwa. What, what is this guy's name? Uh, he's, well, he, he actually just lost uh, the primary in, oh, uh, in New Mexico. Alan Way, W-E-H. Yeah. And uh, so it was a, the same things were playing out in New Mexico as played uh, as are currently playing out. In well, you California. said there's a Carl Rove robocall for this guy right. where yes. he uses the phrase tough, tough as, as nails. nails. Yeah, I'm sure there's a political consultant in there. <laughs> but the, the, the same issue that, that that happened in the New Mexico primary is taking place now in the California Republican primary, where the, the candidates are going at it, trying to uh, out tough toughen each other on the immigration issue. Um, the, and the difficulty they've had is that when you go back into Republican political history, not so far back, um, that many Republicans uh, were avid supporters of the George Bush immigration program, which is not a whole lot different from the Obama immigration program that included um, among the, the different uh, options uh, and branches of the, pro of, of the tree um, were our plans to legalize immigrants, um, have them jump through all kinds of hoops to get there, mm -hmm. call it amnesty or not. I think in the end, it's it, it, obviously if you're forgiving someone, no matter what you ask them to do to get there, it's a form of amnesty. But that was fine when times were okay for many Republicans, moderate Republicans. Well, and for example, and, Dan Lundgren, who mm -hmm. is a California congressman, he was in Congress in the 80s. He carried the bill uh, that uh, legalized uh, millions of non-citizens and now is a virulent opponent of amnesty. Right. And so, uh, fortunately, he benefits uh, from a position against amnesty and for amnesia. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, the bill that you're referring to is the Immigration Reform and Control Act signed by Ronald Reagan in 1986. 86, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. um, and and so, a, a bill that essentially legalized the illegal status of some three million people. Conservatives call it Reagan's big mistake, um, but he did so 
uh, for the same reasons that people are. Uh, Obama is 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 moving forward and uh, trying to move forward, and Bush was emphasizing it uh, as a, a result of, to a large extent, uh, not not only. Uh, lobbying by migrants' rights organizations and and religious organizations and others who see it as the right thing to do, but by employers who have formed a sort of a strange bedfellows alliance with migrants' rights groups uh, who also want that uh, workforce legalized and the ability to bring in more and more. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting to me as well, pardon me, is that Um, The issues in California, Mm -hmm. according to the polls that voters care about, are jobs Mm -hmm. and the economic wreckage that's being left by Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, the most recent amateur who became governor. And now we have a billionaire who has no political experience who wants to follow in his footsteps to clean up the mess, she says, caused by politicians. Mm -hmm. Well, some of that's true. But uh, if you don't consider Schwarzenegger a politician then uh, she's really uh, just just coming out of the same playbook. Well, don't f- but he, of course, is an immigrant who has taken a moderate position on most immigration-related issues. As Bush did, mm-hmm. living in Texas, where there's a much more moderate and accepting culture um, than has been the case in California initially. I think that's changed. I think the Republicans are misreading the tea leaves there. Um, I think we, we've moved in California, where I also live, uh, some distance. And, it's, and California is not Arizona. California, Arizona is now kind of going through what uh, California did go through in the 1990s, mm-hmm. I think. But you know, as you well know, in, in a Republican primary, candidates tack to the, to the right, just as Democrats do to the left, and then have to sort of readjust in, in a general election. They have to play to... to to the extreme bases. Um, and I think, though, what happened in Arizona um, was also fairly predictable, mm-hmm. um, where a collision course was was set, uh, in part by the Clinton administration. And and then followed by Janet Napolitano, who is uh, was a Democratic governor there, is now director of Homeland Security. Right. And uh, she took some pretty conservative positions, some of which she appeared to be forced into, uh, by popular support and a right-leaning legislature. Right. Well, let me explain what happened in, in Arizona, because I think it, it illustrates a, a number of interesting things. And that is, you know, during the 90s, and you just touched on what Pete Wilson, the governor of California, did, running a sort of anti-immigrant campaigns. Uh, but there was a lot of pressure put on, on the White House also. And in response to that po- building political pressure that galvanized in California and made its way to the White House, uh, President Clinton militarized the border uh, in, in, our, in Texas uh, with Operation Hold the Line, with California uh, with Operation Gatekeeper. He sent more National Guard, not National Guard, I'm sorry, uh, Border Patrol agents to the border and built fences with the stated intent of driving migrants through the desert, through the Arizona uh, inhospitable desert, figuring that people would be dissuaded. The only problem was that the conditions on both sides of the border didn't that motivated people to come across in the first place didn't change. Uh, Mexicans were pushed out as a result of uh, various austerity programs put in place by the Mexican government as a result of deals made. With, uh, Reuben Washington. and Summers in charge. Reuben and Summers <laughs> in charge. It's interesting how the same names keep cropping up. Yeah. Um, so credit was tough. Austerity programs put in place. Mexicans kept coming across the border. Um, and, and in response, not only to those push factors, but to pull factors, because with changing economic factors in the United States there was a demand for people in in the growing service economy. The nature of the economy was changing with the the fall of the Berlin Wall and uh, uh, aerospace was down in the dumps. But there was a growing need for service workers, and those people came across, um, kept coming across, lured by jobs, pushed out by economic circumstances, funneled, uh, courtesy of the Clinton administration, through one of the most conservative states in the Union. Um, and as the demographics started changing very quickly, very rapidly, much more rapidly than occurred in California, 
um, in a way, the collision course was was set, and these unintended consequences of policies are now playing out as we know in Arizona with SB 1070. And Jeffrey, if you would uh, amplify a little bit of that with the NAFTA deal and its impact on corn, uh, mm-hmm. corn uh, growers in Mexico. Yeah. I mean, that's another example of the unintended consequences of policies uh, with respect to immigration, things that we don't, we don't really think through. Uh, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, signed uh, an agreement between, uh, among Canada, the United States, and Mexico, uh, opened up the uh, market to corn farmers uh, from the United States to be able to sell corn at uh, uh, cheap prices, export corn to, to Mexico. Um, so they were they're able, this continues, to get subsidies from the U.S. government, ship cheap corn down to Mexico, uh, farmers there unable to compete with the cheap corn that's sent to them, sold to them, sold in the marketplace, um, see, often see no, no alternatives. And I've spoken to corn farmers from Mexico, or former corn farmers from Mexico, who didn't see any other alternatives. The economic disparity has widened in Mexico, no job opportunities. So what are you going to do if you can't uh, if you can't compete with the corn that's being exported into your country and you see opportunities north, you're going to go north. Mm-hmm. And so as a direct result of, of, of our policies, we're actually motivate, motivating migrants to, to, to cross the border, to move mm-hmm. north. And the same thing is happening around the world. I was in Senegal, uh, which is the country on the westernmost bulge of, of Africa, um, watching cheap food being unloaded, uh, by freighters in the port of Dakar, um, cheap rice, other other food stuffs that's uh, in the market that comes in from Europe. Also, much of it subsidized, um, and the same same issue there is is befalling farmers who uh, have a hard time competing. Mm-hmm. And so, for the same reasons, look north, try to cross the Mediterranean, and go and in, come into Europe. Yeah. Uh, these, these same kinds of policies, these same issues play out everywhere. Um, now, now, post-NAFTA, mm-hmm. um, many American companies had joint ventures with uh, Mexican operations that created these maquiladoras, mm-hmm. mostly factories that were set up just across the border. Mm-hmm. Um, those didn't last very long as the race to the bottom for lowest wages, highest productivity moved elsewhere. Right. These were assembly plants that were, were put, put in place at the border where they would take uh, component parts and assemble them in, in Mexico. And people came all over, from all over Mexico, uh, moved north, moved to the border to work in these assembly plants, these maquiladoras as they're called. Um, and uh, there are actually a couple of, and these were, these were companies that were, as you suggest, established by transnational companies, American-based companies, Japanese-based companies. Sony was making Sony. cell phones and uh, computer monitors there at the time. Right, all mm-hmm. kinds of things, com- uh, com- uh, components for automobiles, televisions, on and on and on and on. Um, but there are a couple of things that happened. One was that as people moved north from the interior of Mexico to work on at these border plants, um, uh, they realized that they weren't getting the deal that they had expected. Um, often, uh, the, the wages were low. Uh, women were very often humiliated and subjected to pregnancy tests, um, lousy working conditions. But they'd come that far north, and many of them just decided to keep going. Mm-hmm. So here, here's another policy. We established these assembly plants in, in the north of the country, lure people to work there, People uh, are pissed off by what they're seeing as uh, conditions that don't meet their expectations or see themselves as being exploited and come across. And then the other thing that started to happen, you're right, is a lot of these assembly plants just completely fell apart as transnational companies moved on to other uh, low-wage areas of the world, uh, whether that be the Caribbean Basin or Asia or wherever they decided to, to... uh, put their stakes, mm-hmm. um, and also attracted migrants. Obviously, if you're going to provide opportunities, you're going to be able to pull people from one place to another. 
So that's the other thing that we need to look at. As, mm-hmm. as these transnational companies wander around the globe in a nomadic fashion, what effect are they having on, on the movement of migrants? And one of the things that I found, uh, I went to visit um, a factory in, near Monterrey in Mexico, uh, uh, where, the, well, it wasn't a factory at the time. It was an abandoned factory, abandoned by Haynes Brands, which is the company that makes Wonder Bra and uh, uh, Playtex and uh, and various other garments, Haynes underwear. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had abandoned the plant, fired people, and moved on to the Dominican Republic and later Asia, where they could find cheaper workers. Um, but at these plants, there had been organizing drives by workers. And so what I found in talking to some of the women, because they were mostly women who were kind of left over there, and, and most of the women who had been employed at the plants were telling me it had happened, was as a result of the organizing drive, they had been able uh, to uh, uh, insist that the company provide severance pay uh, if there were going to be layoffs. And at first, the company denied that they were going to be moving. No, 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 don't worry, your jobs are secure. Then it became obvious they were going to be leaving. And so the company did agree to pay worker severance pay. Um, And what ended up happening as a result of that was, particularly with the men, not so much the women, but the men who were provided the severance pay used that severance pay to hire human smugglers, coyotes, to take them across the border into Texas. Mm -hmm. So there you have a direct link between the policies of a company, racing to the bottom, moving on, subsidizing, if you will, uh, coyotes, human smugglers, by providing the severance pay. Again, not really looking at the consequences and, and how, what the, uh, how the effects of movement by transnational companies affects the movement of people. And there are some sub-stories along with the, the Haynes story that are very powerful in your book. For example, with those severance pay uh, checks, uh, some of the men abandoned their families yeah. because they followed the magnet of work then uh, found another woman, started a new family uh, in in their new place of work. And so not only displacement, but uh, the breakdown of families uh, is a byproduct of of these uh, very powerful economic factors. I want to play a clip here from an interview I did last year, and I, I just have a hunch that you know Charles Bowden. Uh, he's I know a, who he is. I know he, who he is. Yeah, he's a writer, and he lives uh, somewhere close to the border in Arizona. And uh, he wrote a powerful piece for Harper's Magazine late last year. Uh, But I'd just like to get your reaction to his comments here. I'm talking with Charles Bowden. Read his article. It's powerful stuff in the new Mother Jones, July, August, 09 edition. And Chuck Bowden, um, as I look at this, I believe that the militarization of drug policy has been an utter failure. Obama's new drug czar, Gil Kurlikowski, the former police chief from Seattle, is trying to step back from the language, the militarization language of, of drug policy. But it seems that uh, we, we've kind of missed the boat here because the situation in Mexico seems to be beyond uh, a, a point of no return, that these drug cartels are so heavily armed and uh, have dominance over key geographic areas, and with the amounts of money involved, the bribery opportunities there as you point out in your article, have made the military riddled with uh, unreliable people and and those who have a a personal selfish agenda. So do you see a way out of this uh, with most of the weapons, the automatic weapons in particular, coming from the United States? Most, of course, of the product is being sold in the United States. Um, This really seems to be an intractable set of issues that threatens the stability of the government of Mexico. And yes, in two ways. Look, the, uh, what we've done for 40 years in the United States is take what at most is a public health issue, drug use, and turn it into a criminal issue. We've created an empire of prisons, narcotics officers, and agencies. What's happened in Mexico is that they become dependent on the money, and I'll give their listeners an easy example. The number one source of foreign currency in Mexico exports through exports is oil. Number two, officially, is the remittances sent by illegal Mexicans in the United States, the money they send home, which is $23 billion. Number three is tourism and then agriculture. This is all malarkey. 
look at the drug industry, sends 30 to $50 billion of hard currency a year home to Mexico. The budget of the Mexican military, the army, which is about 250,000 people, is about 4 to $5 billion a year. DEA, by its own analysis, in 1995, which you know was a little ways back in time, figured the Juarez cartel alone was taking in 250 million a week. That the big money is in drugs. If you magically could stop Americans from purchasing these interesting South American products, if you could just magically seal the border, Mexico would collapse. Would Mexico collapse? as Chuck Bowden offers there, if we were able to seal our borders and stop the uh, cross-border drug trade? Yeah, it's a, you know, first of all, it's a, a, an extremely hypothetical proposition to seal borders. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's possible. Uh-huh. Um, but I think one of the unfortunate issues here is that we tend to, con- I mean, I, I don't disagree with what he's saying about uh, the impact on of drugs and drug money. I'm not sure about the numbers. I'm not sure how you can approximate those numbers, but you know, even accepting that that's, that's the case. Certainly what's happening in, in Mexico, the fighting among the, uh, the cartels, the inability of the government to, uh, to really do something serious about that infighting and to create more infighting as the, you know, the more they go after cartels and uh, try to decapitate the heads of the cartels, the more there's going to be infighting. Um, even though the army is seems to be siding with one group or another, there have been all kinds of reports about that. Uh, but it's obviously having a destabilizing effect on the Mexican economy, no question about it. Um, but uh, unfortunately, what's happened is we've conflated drugs and crime with, with immigration. And uh, so, I mean, obviously they involve border issues, but they're different issues. And we need to deal with them in, in, in different ways, rather than assuming in the same breath that they're, they're all related. Uh, historically, we, we've looked at that border um, and tried to attach to it the political, uh, the important poli- political events or controversies of the day. Mm-hmm. In, 19, in the 1950s, there was concern that communists were coming across the right. border. Yeah. And let's seal the border to make sure communists were coming. Uh, we could stop communists. After 2001, we, we talked about terrorists who were coming across the border. These are all important issues. I'm not sure about the communists and anarchists coming across. That's mm-hmm. a whole other thing. Anarchists were also accused of coming across the Mexican border, snuck in from Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's deal with immigration as a separate issue and yeah. deal with terrorism, drugs, the other things as separate issues. Well, putting aside drugs now for a moment and just looking at the border itself, and I'm talking about the southern border of the United States, Mm -hmm. uh, President Bush committed uh, California and other states' National Guard troops to go there and fix their trucks and and do a few other things, but not actually to, you know, walk beats uh, along the, uh, the line itself. And now President Obama, uh, in response to the uh, brouhaha in Arizona, has announced uh, additional National Guard forces and a half billion dollars. I'm not really sure what it's going to be spent on. And uh, it it just strikes me that this is all for domestic PR consumption. Mm -hmm. Because no matter what we do, and it's, uh, you quote Janet Napolitano, uh, who's been widely quoted with this line, that show me a 50-foot fence and I'll show you a 51-foot ladder. Uh, People will find a way around it even if it's to come in on a tourist visa and overstay right. uh, using an airline or, uh, you know, other means of transportation. So uh, will we continue to fool ourselves well, into, tell- into these militarized uh, models that really don't deal with the powerful economic factors and the historical trends that you detail so well in your book? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, can tell, <laughs> I can tell you that one tangible effect of sending 1,200 National Guard troops to the border will be this. You will see rushing to the border, once they're there, uh, platoons of governors and congressmen and legislators from around the country who will be eager to pose for photographs with the National Guard's troops from their states. It happened when uh, President Bush sent 6,000 
National Guard's troops to the, to, to the border. Uh, those folks, because uh, I was down there, and uh, were besieged with requests from uh, visit, visiting dignitaries who loved to get their pictures in, in newspapers and online being seen as tough as nails uh, <laughs> on the border with their National Guard's troops from, from their state. What can, what can be better? But during that buildup, immigration continued. Illegal immigration continued, probably increased. It's hard to say what tangible effect that actually had. And my guess is the same thing will, will happen this time around, mm -hmm. particularly with only 1,200 National Guard's troops. And I don't know how that extra 500 million will be used, but I don't, I'm not sure it's to be used on, on immigration issues. That, yeah. that remains to be seen. Jeffrey, earlier today I got to listen to a local radio program, and you were on with Ron Owens, who uh, uh, is described as a, a centrist, but on this issue he's, he's pretty hardline right. And uh, he kind of set up the discussion and then took some calls from uh, listeners who were pretty uh, uh, reliable in stoking the simplistic approaches to these issues. But one of the things you talked about is the uh, worldwide uh, distribution of nurses and that in the United States we have a shortage of nurses, particularly those who are citizens, and that we have been uh, importing many nurses from the Philippines in particular. And you used an interesting phrase. They grow nurses in the Philippines for export. And we talked about remittances to Mexico. We heard Chuck Bowden identifying that as the number two source of hard currency. But if you would, describe the centers uh, around the world where people uh, get a good education, develop a skill set, and then are intentionally sent abroad by their governments and its policies so that the remittances become uh, a, a staple and a stable source of of currency and revenue to those governments. Well, I think the Philippines is number one, uh, the, the, the best example, uh, where they have essentially, as a legacy of colonial days, uh, not really formed a sustainable economy other than exporting people uh, to make money and send, and send it home, nurses being one good example. In, in the Philippines, they teach specifically to the curricula set by Americans and Canadians and British, um, depending on which uh, training school you're going to go to. Um, so the expectation is that you are essentially being groomed uh, for export. And, um, and ironically, there's a shortage of nurses in the Philippines. Uh, not so much because those people don't have training, uh, there are nurses around, but they don't pay anything. Mm -hmm. So you can go into hospitals, as I did, and see that uh, doctors are helping on the floor doing the work of nurses. Um, there's a shortage. Patients are going out to, uh, or, or the relatives of patients, to buy medication, giving medication, changing sheets, doing all the stuff that you'd expect nurses to do in a public public hospital, and they're not around to do it. Where are those those people? They're in the United States, Saudi Arabia, elsewhere, uh, ministering to the uh, uh, to, to folks, uh, our own people, people in the developed world. Um, there is such a culture of migration, immigration in the Philippines. They the president hands out awards to the migrants of the year. Um, there was one particular, very poignant story uh, that that I came across involving. Uh, one recipient of the Migrant of the Year Award, a nanny who had been working, I believe it was in Vermont or Maine, I don't remember, um, who uh, had uh, noticed a fire in the house that she was working in and uh, made sure that, I don't think she was actually in, in the house at the time the fire broke out, but she called the fire department who responded quickly. Fire was put out. Family was very grateful, notified the consulate. Woman went in and got an award from the consulate and got an award from the president of the Philippines. But it turned out that this woman, who had helped this family so much, herself had abandoned in a way um, or left her own family back home in the Philippines. Uh, I think she had a six-year-old son and a husband, and, and her, her job mm -hmm. uh, was to work as a nanny and send money home to and to her own family. So often we don't. We just don't think about the consequences of migration on the migrants themselves, and that's that's just one one example. 
And, and Jeffrey, there's a, a, a movement that uh, is, is derived from outrage over what is described as human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And this often relates to rather sordid exploitation of people for sexual purposes, either right. uh, women who are brought here from other countries and forced into prostitution, uh, children who are exploited sexually, and, and that's a very serious problem. And I I don't mean to minimize it in any way. But the term also applies to the exploitation of a whole range of workers who are brought to this country who are bound to their employer in a manner that is consistent with slavery and who live in squalid conditions, who cannot raise their voices uh, to uh, uh, really just demand basic human rights. And they're a fundamental part of the profit system in this country, and I infer that uh, they are the source of your subtitle, Coyote Capitalism. Well, yes and no. I think what you're referring to may, I mean, undoubtedly there are people who are brought here, many of them in the high-tech industry, uh, by companies that recruit folks well-trained, sometimes not that well-trained. Sometimes there's a lot of subterfuge that's going on and lying about what people's actual experience and qualifications are by companies that have been based in uh, in India, bring in high-tech workers uh, with the expectation on both si- on all sides that the, there'll be work um, on all sides, meaning uh, that they will provide workers to employers and employees who have been brought here expecting work. Sometimes that doesn't happen, particularly in the down economy. And, uh, uh, and they often have to live in fairly squalid conditions. And I've spoken to people who... Uh, have had to bunk and uh, gone without work until finally a job comes up. Uh, but um, so working in a way in a, in, in a sort of indentured servitude, conditions of in, indentured uh, mm-hmm. servitude, where they have to pay money back. Um, but coyote capitalism is, is a term that was coined to really refer to a system, a global system, in which people are moved around like, like component parts, um, the job of a coyote, a human smuggler, is to get someone across a border. It doesn't really matter uh, the circumstances, how they get from one place to another. As long as they get there, the, the smuggler gets paid. The smuggler doesn't care about what's pushing them out, what's pulling them in, or the consequences of the move. And likewise, across the globe, there are these push and pull factors that motivate people to move um, much in the same way as a coyote uh, operates without really thinking about either the circumstances or, or the conditions once that migrant gets to where he or she is going. Mm-hmm. In the current debate, um, th- there's a lot of heat, not a whole lot of light. But nobody seems to focus in any substantial way on the H-1B visas. And that as our economy has uh, uh, declined in the last few years and employment here has declined, there are many qualified engineers here in the United States who would love to work at Cisco or Intel or uh, any of these uh, names that are household words in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Has there been any effort to place restrictions on the H-1Bs, in particular to try to protect uh, tech workers and engineers who are Americans who'd like to work in the United States. Yes, there has been. There, there, there's been a bill, a bipartisan bill, introduced by Senators uh, Durbin and Grassley to to restrict the numbers coming in. Um, but it's a long and difficult process for them to, to try to get anywhere with those uh, uh, trying to restrict the... Uh, and you mentioned H-1B. That's the, the temporary worker program for mm-hmm. highly skilled workers. Uh, because of lobbying by the high-tech industry. Um, the high-tech industry has been, Microsoft notably, has been diligent in pushing for workers to come in uh, regardless of what the economic circumstances are. In the same week that uh, Microsoft was laying people off, they're actually applying to bring in more workers under the H- H-1B program. But that's uh, that's something that employers have continued to do over the decades, over the centuries, an issue that we didn't really focus about when we look at who's pushing to mobilize, for mobility, who's arguing and lobbying for worker mobility. We tend to focus on the migrants and migrants' rights organizations who march in the streets, but we, we don't really think about the Microsofts and the Chambers of Commerce 
that are much quietly uh, also lobbying in favor of, of, of more mobility for, for workers to cross borders. And in your book, Moving Millions, you should plug it a little more often. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> you, you write, uh, the U.S. GAO, investigative arm of Congress, examined the H-1B program in 2006. Mm -hmm. It found that the Department of Labor was falling down on the job by failing to provide adequate oversight. It determined that the vast majority, and even that's an understatement, 99.5% of applications are automatically improved, uh, approved, by government computers. Right. And so there is no case-by-case -case evaluation because under the H-1B program, the employer is supposed to certify that they searched and searched and searched up and down for an American to do this job, couldn't find one, and therefore they have to go overseas. Right. Right. So this is just a big rubber stamp. Well, I, I think it's true that, that circumstances have changed a little and the Obama administration has, has hired more inspectors as a result of, of those, some of those investigations. Um, I'm not sure that those numbers would hold, would, would hold up today, but certainly um, that you know, people are still coming in uh, on, on visas because, as I said before, the high-tech industry has been lobbying and, mm -hmm. uh, and eagerly seeks those people. Now, Jeffrey, we have spent billions on contractors in Iraq in particular mm -hmm. who work for American companies that get huge dollars, uh, huge bundles of money from the Pentagon and from, I guess, some of the other agencies to help rebuild Iraq and uh, part of this entire program. Do you have any idea what percentage of the contractors who work for American companies in the military sector are actually Americans? No. Because, uh, the, at least anecdotally, uh, those who are deployed, particularly in Iraq, uh, are a rainbow of people from all over the world. It's It seems to be primarily non-Americans. Right. Well, I think that's true on many American bases. I actually was on Guantanamo, in Guantanamo Bay, a few years ago, and was amazed to see that most of the people who, who were serving the food were Jamaicans, um, hmm. not Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think there's any requirement to, to hire American on American bases. Yeah. Now, Jeffrey, as we get ready to wrap up, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about the Irish. Um, I just came from a family reunion and was steeped in some of the family history. Four brothers uh, emigrated during the potato famine, mm -hmm. uh, starting in 1849, and the youngest came over in about uh, 1860. Uh, there are now 2,000 direct descendants of those four brothers, and we had a reunion, uh, low turnout, about 600 uh, came together. But your book is fascinating about, again, the history of Irish migration and the recent uh, developments in the last 10 years or so where Ireland became uh, a hub for employment and it was actually importing workers, including many from Poland. That's right. Things changed as I wrote the book and as I researched and went around the world. Um, at the time, I put a proposal in and got the, the publisher to agree to publish the book, uh, that was the case. More and more workers were moving from Poland to Ireland. Ireland had the, the Celtic tiger had taken over and was leaping forward with uh, great abandon uh, with high-tech industry and others that were really booming. Um, Dell Computer. Dell Computers, you, Apple, mm -hmm. every computer company, you, you name it, had set up shop. By the time I arrived in, in Ireland uh, in uh, 2008, uh, Ireland was the first European country, uh, first country in the, in the Western world, actually, to have an official recession. Things were turning around drastically for the same reason they did in the United States, speculation on housing, um, the, the bubble burst. Um, and what had started to happen was that those people who had come from Poland and other places were in Eastern Europe were starting to go home, um, a process that the experts described as reverse migration. Um, and I was at least a little concerned. My editor told me not to worry that the same issues um, are, were still in play in the book in the, and, and, and the principles that I was talking about, the principles of looking, tying immigration to economics and economic circumstances. The only difference is 
things were not matching ex- exactly my expectations because I hadn't not hadn't realized the bubble would burst when it did. I didn't anticipate. I don't think any of us really anticipated the, the extent of the recession. Um, but nonetheless, people found opportunity was not there in Ireland as they expected and hoped it would be. The Polish economy um, was somewhat down, but nonetheless seemed to be somewhat flourishing. And so not only were Polish emigres to Ireland returning to Poland, the Irish were starting to immigrate again. Um, A long tradition, going back to the potato famine, as you mentioned, and were actually moving themselves from Ireland to Poland and starting to migrate around Eastern Europe, an old tradition, an old Irish tradition reborn. And the subsidies that um, first Ireland and then Poland used to attract corporate interests, uh, what is your guess about whether those are a net benefit to the citizens of those countries? Because in order to attract this investment, they give up so much. And it's really hard to reconcile, at least, uh, you know, based on the, the surface issues, about whether this is a, a net uh, profit, net gain for uh, the countries that extend those benefits. Well, it's a short-term gain, and it's a, it, it, but it's a game that has been played and continues to be played everywhere around the world, whether that's one city competing with another uh, and offering sweet deals to companies, uh, you know, no taxes, or states competing with, e- with each other, or in the cases that you're alluding to in uh, uh, Poland and Vietnam and setting up special economic zones, they're called, around the world. Uh, the, the danger in, with these special economic zones is that peripatetic companies, um, nomadic companies, uh, are likely, if there's another better deal that comes up, to, to move on. So, there, yeah, there's a short-term gain. People get jobs, no question about that. Um, but what's the commitment of, of the companies themselves? And they need to be held to account. We mm-hmm. don't do that. Yeah. Well, Jeffrey, I want to thank you and just ask you in closing what your advice would be to President Obama to navigate these these tricky hurdles because uh, he wanted to bring up immigration this year, and it seems that Lindsey Graham, uh, the senator from uh, North Carolina, uh, South Carolina, has just said, hey, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so it appears that we're at least a a year or more away from any meaningful effort to address the admittedly complex and important issues that uh, uh, do cause problems and certainly inflame uh, a lot of citizens. But how would you advise President Obama to approach this? Well, I think Obama is driving down the wrong road on this. Um, The policy at this point seems to be enforcement-heavy. And I think that's that's a mistake. I would I would advise him to ease off on that. But more importantly, I would ask him um, to to begin the in, the very important international dialogues that need to take place. Uh, by its nature, immigration is an international issue since it involves borders. The idea that Arizona can deal with the problem by itself, um, or that the federal government can deal with the problem on a national basis is, in, in my mind, fairly absurd. So you've got to start looking at it for what it is, an, an international issue. The other thing I think that the president needs to do and those people involved uh, in this issue need to explain is do a lot better job of connecting people's histories to what's going on today. Just as you talk about the Irish immigration, people need to be aware of what it was that motivated their own families to, to move. Um, and and to try to put themselves in the footsteps of those people coming across today, and they'll see that there's a connection between their own family histories and the his and and what we see taking place as people cross borders. And finally, I would ask people to to think about this not only in terms of what it means to us. How can we do, uh, do we benefit or or not from migrants? How much do they cost us? Um, but to think about ourselves as part of a human family. When I was in uh, the Philippines, um, a migrant rights organization had a slogan that I found quite poignant and memorable, and that is, we dream of a society that will never be torn apart just for the need to survive. 
when you start thinking about migration in those very human terms, it it casts it in a different light, a a human one. And I think that's what the president, by example, can, can help us understand. Jeffrey Kay, the new book is Moving Millions, How Coyote Capitalism Fuels Global Immigration, in hardcover from Wiley. Great to meet you. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Your comments, welcome. Email peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails.